Hey everyone, we want to welcome you to the Floater Founder Podcast. This is a Toronto-based podcast featuring local founders across all markets. We are your hosts, Samantha Lloyd and Lyson Casey. We are going to be bringing you interviews with exciting and hardworking founders. They will be sharing their experience creating and leading a company. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, you're here with Floater Founder. Uh, today we're standing for our recording, <laughs> so that's interesting. Um, I'm Samantha Lloyd, your host, and I'm here with my co-host, Lyson Casey. Hello everyone. And today we're super excited to get to interview the founder of Vitali Designs, Shane Vitali. So thank you for having us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, so tell our listeners, what is Vitali Designs? My company is actually Compound Studio, um, and Compound Studio is kind of our umbrella for the other brands that we build and we specialize in building accessory and jewelry brands um, so right now we have Vitali and clocks and colors in market so Vitali is kind of our genderless um, streetwear slash very kind of fashion forward brand um, it's very affordable but extremely high quality um, and then we have another brand called clocks and colors clocks and colors is a very biker rock and roll kind of tattoo culture type brand um, a little bit more premium made from sterling silver and you know quite a g pretty big chunky stuff and then we're actually launching a new brand in a week and that brand's called etta love and that's a women's brand kind of lives in the world of clocks and colors it's very kind of biker uh, edgy a lot of skulls and roses and that kind of vibe very cool my kind of taste yeah <laughs> i like it um why did you go about starting uh accessory brands and and how did you start this whole journey um, yeah, it happened really organically. You know, I don't think my friends were overly surprised. Um, you know, I think growing up, I was always kind of an edgy kid and, and playing around, you know, dyeing my hair and wearing women's jeans because I couldn't get men's skinny jeans, that kind of vibe. Um, and then, you know, when I finished up university, I knew that I needed to do something. I just needed to get out of the, out of the country. So I went backpacking through Southeast Asia. And when I was there, I had something made for myself and I just immediately got hooked on it. It was like, such an instant addiction I can't even explain the thrill I got just from seeing this really awful thing that came from my mind um, and you know from there I just kept refining and refining and eventually I had something that I brought home and people liked and you know it wasn't really meant to be a business at first though you know it was just something I was bringing home for gifts and something that I just enjoyed doing and then I started to see that there was an opportunity and you know just kind of organically grew it from there at least for you know, the first six months and then my business partner joined on and it was a little bit more, I'd say aggressive and a little bit more um, thoughtful in how we were approaching everything. Very cool. And you started the business in 2011. When did you go into e-commerce and when did you go into brick and mortar and how has both of those processes been starting that? Yeah. So we actually went into both pretty much immediately. Um, you know, when we started, we didn't know anything. Uh, my business partner, flew helicopters and he was a professional poker player and I was just finishing up university. So, you know, I'd done marketing for Red Bull. So I had some background in marketing there and, you know, I was a pretty astute student. Um, but when we went into doing this, it wasn't like, okay, we've planned this for ages and we have a big elaborate business plan. It was really just hit the ground running. The way that the business started was so organic though. I just had a handful of rings in my bag and I was in a store on Queen Street and I knew the owner was there. So I just asked her, like, is this something that you would ever sell? And she bought all the samples off me on the spot. Wow. So that's how I knew I had a business. I was like, okay, well, there's something here. I figured it was probably just a niche thing because I was only making two finger and three finger rings at the time. Um, so I was like, oh, this is cool. Maybe I can sell enough of these to pay for a backpacking trip. Um, but as kind of time went by, I started to see that there was more of an opening in the market. And now that's kind of what we've 
grown into you know now our specialty is finding those gaps in the market within jewelry and then really kind of helping close them but in terms of the decision to go to e-commerce or to go to retail again you know it wasn't thought out it just kind of happened naturally e-commerce at the time though was a lot more complex we didn't have shopify (laughs) it was like i think we used weebly or something and maybe wix and i built the first couple websites and they were truly truly awful uh our creative director, who's been with us for about six years now, Zach Vitiello, super, super brilliant guy. He's still got a screenshot of that initial website. <laughs> I think he likes to go to it once in a while and be like, wow. Awesome. Um, and how do you go about creating a lifestyle brand and not just another product? That's a really tough question. I think that it has to be attached to a culture. I think that's probably the biggest thing. Um, you know, so early days for Vitali, we were very, very, very entrenched in the music scene, especially at the time the kind of underground techno scene and tech house scene and just really electronic music in general. Um, and, you know, I think that gave us kind of a a true kind of culture and, and, and a foundation for what the brand became. And then when I started Clocks and Colors about four or five years ago, that was meant to kind of touch on the other worlds that are really important to me that I wasn't really able to touch on with Vitaly. So it was authentic in that respect too. Like I was doing something to kind of touch on the rock and roll and metal world and the motorcycle world and the tattoo community. Um, I honestly didn't expect that brand to do very much. That was supposed to be just a passion project. My business partner was like, okay, you can have a few bucks and like make some rings in that world or do whatever you want. But like your focus is Vitaly. Now they're about the same. (laughs) That's awesome. And are you kind of then like also the target customer of all of those markets? No, I think, I think I'm a bit of a weird conundrum. So I mix a lot of worlds together. Um, you know, I'm the guy who will ride his Harley to yoga. So, you know, I think I'm a bit of a weirdo in that respect. (laughs) Um, you know, when, when you're a marketer, you're kind of always trying to put people in a box. Sounds awful, but it's just the easiest way to approach a brand and approach things. Right. Um, and you know, we kind of have clocks and colors. It's a really, really clear image. Vitaly is a lot more complex. The brand is genderless. Um, our reach is huge when it comes to age range, um, and just style in general. So that one, there's probably a whole bunch of boxes, if anything. Is it um, like difficult to try and target all these different markets, or does it make it fun to get to target a bunch of different markets? It's definitely difficult. I'm certainly grateful for some of the tools that we have today. Um, you know, it, when we were trying to do this six, seven, eight years ago, you didn't have the same kind of resources that you have today. Today, you have algorithmic and programmatic uh, tools just kind of at your fingertip. You don't have to do anything really. You just have to put a whole bunch of money and kind of keep paying attention. Um, You know, there's, it's obviously a lot more complex than that, but back in the day, you really, really, really had to know who your customer was. And today you can kind of just put something out in the world and let the customer find you, um, which I think is really, really, you know, exciting and kind of interesting. And what's really fun is that there is kind of a customer for everything these days. You know, as long as you're able to get enough reach with your concept, there's going to be somebody who identifies with what you're doing, which is why we're having so much fun and which is why we've created Compound Studio. So, you know, we started as Vitaly, added clocks. Now we're adding other brands and it's really just because we're like, oh, you know, be sweet. Like, let's do something in this world now. And, you know, I've got this idea for this other world. And yeah. Awesome. Yeah, you were talking earlier about how you create jewelry uh, that, that you find there's a gap in the market for. Uh, how do you go about and identify that gap in the market? Like, what's your process for that? I mean, initially it was that I wanted stuff. And I think that that's kind of common for the story for entrepreneurs. You know, you 
you kind of realize, you know, why doesn't this exist? I want this. And you go and you create it for yourself. And maybe there's other people thinking the same way as you. And that was the case for Vitaly. And that was the case for Clocks and Colors. When we started doing Vitaly, men weren't even really wearing jewelry. So there was almost nothing available. We pretty much had to create a category. Um, at the time, you had like David Yerman, which was exorbitantly more expensive. And then virtually nothing in between until you got to like just straight up costume jewelry. Um, so there was a lot of opportunity at that time. And I would say that there still is actually quite a lot of opportunity. But in terms of identifying markets later on, you know, again, clocks and colors came from the same kind of thing. I wanted more of a biker look. I kind of go in and out of phases. And I, you know, I like to juxtapose styles like streetwear with biker and whatnot. Um, but now with the new brands, it's more so just paying attention to what our friends are saying. It's, you know, what are they looking for? And we just have such a wide view of the market now after looking at it for eight or nine or 10 years. Um, you know, we can look at things and be like, there's just this huge, huge gap in the women's market. Even though people would look at the women's jewelry world, you know, and not be an expert in that world and think like, how could you possibly find a gap? There's so many, you just kind of have to really know your world. And what's your uh, design process like? Um, it's really different depending on the brand. So Vitaly is a very kind of architecturally driven brand or inspired brand. These days, also very, very fashion forward. Um, actually, moving into the new year, we have some ridiculously wild stuff coming. Um, we're finding that the more over the top we go with it, the better the response is, which is fun for us as creatives and designers because we get to just kind of throw out any ridiculous idea we can come up with. Um, but the process is usually starting with a theme. So right now with Vitaly, we kind of have this theme going for 2020 that's like, you know, a 90s goth meets like grunge and then like, you know, that really kind of like 90s throwback look though, um, but making it playful. So you have that kind of like gothy stuff mixed with like, like poppy colors and just kind of ridiculous stuff. And then with clocks and colors, it's just finding, we have a huge, I have a huge list of these ridiculous ideas. So clocks and colors is very story driven. Um, so each collection we actually call a story and we write, or sorry, we make an actual film for it. We had one that was called the Destroyers Collection and then we did Destroyers Part 2 and Destroyers was just, you know, every piece we designed was something destructive. Simple as that. You know, the um, last, or one of the last collections we did was Vikings and everything was Viking themed. And, you know, we just come up with stuff like that and it just gives you some kind of starting points and jump off points. How do you go about finding like the trends to jump on? Like, how do you know what's right in the fashion industry? I mean, you never really know, right? Um, we're kind of always watching what's happening. You know, for me, I've always just watched the streets. I think that I've kind of always had a bit of an innate sense for, you know, the people. It's not me, but it's, I have an innate sense for who the people are that actually just know. You know, like I'll see somebody walk by and I'll be like, ah, they get it. I can tell they get it. That's not here yet, but it's coming. And, you know, you get that sense. Um, but we have an amazing creative team now as well. And we have a couple people on that team that, you know, they've always been heavily invested in the, the real fashion world. Um, you know, for me, I'm a lifestyle guy. Like I didn't grow up in fashion. I, I didn't study it. And I was never really into like the capital F kind of stuff. Like for me, it was just streetwear and lifestyle. Um, but you know, we have people on the team now that do a lot of kind of trend forecasting, etc. based on like watching, you know, what's happening at Paris fashion week and New York fashion week. Um, but we try and kind of dial that stuff back and, and, package it in a way that people understand and that's not you know so capital f and um can you talk a little bit about the manufacturing process how does that go for your companies 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so Clocks and Colors is for the most part. So the majority of the sales for Clocks and Colors are the sterling silver products, but we all we do some products in stainless steel as well. So most of those are made in Bali. Um, and we work with one factory there. They're exclusive to us now, which is pretty cool. So when we started with them, of course, we were just a small client. Um, but they've grown. I think when we started with them, they're about 12, maybe 15 people. They're now 65 and we're 100% of their business. So it's pretty cool. Um, and then Vitaly for the most, well, right now it's, yeah, all of it right now is done in China. Um, so we have kind of one main core supplier who's also grown dramatically since working with us and we represent probably 90 or 95% of their business. So we're really big on that. We're, we're a very, very loyal company and, you know, we try and find our suppliers and, and build with them. Um, it's a hell of a process though. You know, like we'll have people reach out and be like, Hey, can you give me your supplier? And there's a lot of things that I will give. I will not give that. that like that is that is a big, big ask. You know, I I've probably gone through about 50 different factories over the last eight or nine years. Um, and when you find a good one, like the value is just absolutely enormous. The amount of years I've lost off my life because of bad factories is I can't even like. I'm surprised I have hair and. <laughs> The fact that I don't have gray hair pisses me off because I love gray hair and I should have it by now. Like I've earned it, you know, <laughs> but it's a curse that you'll never get it if you want it. Yeah. So then have you had issues in like manufacturing overseas? Have you had to go overseas when there's an issue? Uh, the, the amount of times that Jason and I will get on the phone and be like, all right, well, that's it. We're done. Game over. Bankrupt. You know, like over and over again. Actually, really, really. It's happened so many times, but. Um, there was one time when we were still doing apparel. Um, so this was probably two years ago. My grandma had never gone on a vacation. So I was like, okay, I'm going to take you to Mexico. We like went on this family vacation. I like paid for everything for her. And I was really excited to like do something with my family. Cause I'd been such a workaholic for so long. And the day that we arrived, I get an email from our operations guy. And he's like, I uh, just want you to know, we got all the clothing. It's a hundred percent fail rate. Every single piece of clothing for our spring collection was useless, couldn't be used. And it was enormous. Like we went so hard. Like this was like the biggest investment we'd made to date. Um, so that was an awful week. And like, I didn't really get to like, you know, properly spend that with my family or anything. I was just complete loose cannon. But yeah, I mean that in that scenario, I was like, I don't know that we're going to make it through this. Um, word for the wise, don't do clothing. Apparel is a freaking nightmare. It's uh, I'm very happy to just be doing jewelry right yeah. now. And are there ways you can handle when there's issues with your manufacturer? What can you do? There's always a way, you know, but there's no real good way. You, you know, you think about it this way, right? Like when you're doing apparel, you're buying for a season and you have to sell it in that season. Because if you don't, it's nobody's buying a pair of shorts in the middle of winter, right? Or far fewer people, right? Or if they are, they're buying it because they're buying it at 75% off. So when stuff doesn't show up, you can't just be like, okay, remake it. That's a four month window, you know, between like milling the fabric, producing it, shipping it, etc. So, you know, you're, you're basically completely screwed. Um, in that circumstance, we were able to remake some of it fast because we had extra fabric and we unfortunately had to ship it over by air. And, you know, there was all these things and we basically just kind of like scrounged everything together. And fortunately we had accessories, right? Like the jewelry really kind of carried us there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's tough. There's no 
good way to deal with it. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's just, it's a bad situation. <laughs> yeah. So you were on Dragon's Den and you actually walked away with a deal, which is awesome. But I've always wondered, what's it like after that? Like, what was the process afterwards? And tell me a little about, a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it kind of came full circle. So we walked away with a deal with Bruce and Arlene. Um, but I don't really know what happened after the show, but we ended up getting a message from Arlene's team basically just saying it's just going to be Arlene, like Bruce is no longer in the picture. We're like, okay, well, that's kind of a bummer because Bruce is awesome. But um, So we had a few meetings with Arlene. Um, they were pretty spaced out. And during every time we met with her, we had already kind of grown a lot and improved a lot. Um, and by the end, we were just kind of like, you know what, like, you're great, but I don't think that this makes sense right now. Like, I think we're probably good on our own. I don't think we need to take this investment. So we ended up just kind of walking away from it. Um, but we ended up meeting with Bruce again just this past year because we were looking at raising again. We, we again, decided not to raise. Um, so we've actually bootstrapped uh, to the point that we're at today. Um, but, yeah, it was really cool just meeting with him. And he's like, damn, I should have invested. Because <laughs> um, I think we've probably grown like 400x since we sat down there. Cool. And, and you talk say you guys were bootstrapping pretty much the entire time. How do you like manage your budget doing that uh, without any uh, investment buffer in there? It's tough. You know, there's, you know, we can still get loans and credit lines and things like that. And those things are obviously critical. Um, but Jason, my business partner, is uh, he's a cash flow whiz. I mean, now we have Parker, who's our CFO, and he does a really amazing job too. But, you know, up until six months ago when we didn't have Parker, it was always Jason doing the cash flow. And, you know, you get taught cash flow in, in business school or, you know, in marketing class or whatever, and it'll be like, you know, your cogs and what's your marketing cost and what's your rent. And, you know, there'll be like seven categories. But a real cash flow is like, you know, a hundred and the most outrageous projections and, it's a it's a pretty wild thing. It's you know it's pretty scary. And if if you don't have somebody who can do a good job of cash flow, it's you know I see a lot of businesses that are doing, you know theoretically they seem like they're doing really well, but they don't know how to manage their cash flow and they go bankrupt because of it. And it, and they're actually growing. You know like they should be okay, but they just didn't know how to control their cash cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably hard to manage cash flow, especially when you have to order inventory and stuff like that too. Super super difficult, especially when you're doing wholesale because when you're doing wholesale, it can be you know, eight months from the time that you paid for the inventory before you get paid back for it. Yeah. It's a huge cycle. So we actually made some huge, huge changes in the last probably 18 months. Um, we got rid of apparel completely and refocused just on accessories. We also got rid of wholesale. Mm-hmm. So we were selling to probably six or 700 retail locations. People thought we were completely crazy and we're like, you know what? Like it's, I really think it's going to be that whole 80, 20 rule thing you know, we're spending all of our time and resources and it's really only representing maybe 20% of the business and probably if anything, negative profit, like it, we're, we're not making anything on it. Right. Um, so we got rid of it and that freed up so much time and bandwidth, but it also made it so we didn't have this insane, you know, stretch between when we spent money on inventory and, and got it back. And now, um, you guys have a store on Queen Spadina, which is awesome for Vitali. Um, how was the process of actually opening a brick and mortar for your designs? Oh man. Um, that store was a complete nightmare the first time. <laughs> well, I say first time cause we, we did other stores and we've since fully renovated it, but, um, actually we're, we're just finishing up a huge renovation of that store and it's being rebranded to compound. Um, that way what we can do is we can have all of our brands under one roof and they basically have their own shop and shops. Um, but yeah, opening that store was completely insane. We 
didn't know anything about renovating a space or anything. We found that space. And we're like, wow, this place is beautiful. But when we took it, there was no gas, no electrical, no plumbing, nothing. Um, three-story building. There was holes in the floor. There was no proper stairs, etc. We thought we could get it all done based on what contractors were saying in three months. We didn't know, you know, actually they said two months. So we thought, okay, three months. We thought we were being smart. Like, oh, we've added 50% time. Um, ended up taking us about eight months to get it open. Uh, there was just so many issues when it came to the, uh, like getting approval from the city for the architecture and stuff. Cool. Yeah. A lot of times when running a startup or a company, people can get, uh, can fall in love with it. And um, how do you kind of look past that and make the decision to drop clothing or drop something that you had designed because it made more sense in the numbers? You know, this won't make sense for everybody, but for people who like a clean environment, you know, you like to do spring cleaning and you get rid of a whole bunch of clothes, for example, and then you just feel lighter. It's kind of like that. Um, you know, you definitely get attached to things, but you, it, it can often just be dead weight, you know, like there's, you just need to kind of put your ego aside and, and put your um, possessiveness aside. And often that becomes the most freeing thing possible. So for us, you know, we were just looking at it. We're, it all kind of happened um, because I was able to look at it from the outside in, though. So to kind of give some context there, I went traveling for a year. I got back in April and I was just kind of managing everything remotely. And that was really powerful for me because I wasn't in the office and doing all the day to day stuff. So I was able to kind of take a seat and look in on things um, so I could work on the business instead of in the business. And that was huge. Um, that was when I kind of saw like, you know, this is clearly what's working and this isn't. And then I went to people on my team and, you know, most people were like, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've already been thinking that or whatever, you know. Um, and once we started to strip off some of the fat, it was like, oh, God, this feels so good. Like, what else can we do? What else can we get rid of? And now our whole company motto is basically just like obsessively focused. Like we're just, everything is about focus. And how was it building a team over the years? How's that been? Hard. It's so, so hard. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm probably scaring people away. Everything is hard and terrifying and awful and whatever. It's not, it's amazing and super rewarding, but you know, it is, is really challenging. Like I was never managed by anyone, right? Like other than kind of part-time jobs, even when I worked for Red Bull, it was kind of like a remote role. Um, and, you know, when you're bartending, like I bartended, you don't, you don't really have somebody like really managing you and, and caring about your life and, and trying to like kind of build your career, et cetera. So I had no way of knowing any of these things. So, you know, that was a whole process having to learn that. I like to read. So, and I think I'm fortunate that I like to read. So I read a lot and tried to kind of learn as much as I could about management. Um, but yeah, we made a lot of bad hires and we made a lot of great ones. And Today, we have the most incredible team. Like, we're doing amazing, amazing stuff, and everybody's just kind of like a family. And, you know, we're at a pretty remarkable scale for how small the team is now, um, but it's because everybody just works so well together. At one point, though, we knew we were scaling really fast. We hired a whole bunch of people quickly, and it was just a mess. And yeah, that was tough. Yeah. <laughs> and do you feel that everyone you hire needs to have like an understanding of the fashion industry, or no? No, I mean, Jason and I run the company. We didn't know anything about it, right? I think the most important thing when you're hiring somebody is that they're passionate about what you're doing. You know, and that that's, I believe that in so deep in my bones, like I've just seen it over and over again. If somebody's passionate about something, they'll figure it out. You know, if they really care, but if they don't care, even if they're brilliant, they're not gonna do anything, you know, or they're gonna do the bare minimum because they just don't care. 
Um, so for us, that's, that's priority number one. Now that's the biggest thing I learned about hiring. There's a lot of people I hired for credentials, you know, cause I was even intimidated by them. I'm like, wow, look at these credentials. They must be so smart or like so hardworking or whatever. And you know, that wasn't really how it works. <laughs> what, what book would you say was the most helpful or had the best advice for, uh, running a company? Oh man, there's so many books. I would say, and I think I've actually mentioned this on a podcast before, but my favorite book for learning about management was called Drive. Um, I just think that he really, really gets down to the core of what motivates people um, and what makes people care about things. And I thought that that was so powerful. I mean, there's a lot in there, but in summary, he basically says people need ownership over what they're doing. You know, if you try and micromanage people or if people just feel like they're just, you know, a little cog in a system and they don't matter, it they're not going to care. Um, so our team, everybody is so critical and they're so aware of what their responsibility is. Without one of those people, everything falls apart. And that's a little scary, but I think that that's what makes it work. Um, so people might see that as like a house of cards or something, but it's it's not. It's what gives us our strength. That's awesome. Alrighty, well, it'll, it's time, I think, for some fun questions. Um, what is your favorite thing about, uh, like, what Toronto offers that no other city you've been to has? I, I honestly love this city. I have to say I travel so, so, so much. It's ridiculous, but I always need to come back here because I just love it as far as cities go. Um, but I always need my, like, escape to beaches and that kind of vibe, too, just to kind of slow down. Um, I, I, it's hard for me to say just one thing, though, like, I kind of have always described, and I know people are going to hate on me for this, but I've kind of always described Toronto as a smaller, cleaner, friendlier New York. <laughs> um, I feel like for me anyway, it has everything that New York has, which I think is pretty, you know, I think most people can understand where I'm going with that. Um, but I don't have to go as far. I don't have to, you know, necessarily even take a train anywhere to get there. Um, I don't know. It's just like a lot of convenience and it's just a great city. I yeah. <laughs> agree. Yeah. And uh, what is your favorite spot in Toronto? Okay. I feel like I just have to name different places. Yeah. Like my favorite coffee right now is Early Bird on Queen Street. It's just such a good coffee. Um, they just do it right. You know, like every time I go there for an Americano, I'm just like, okay, why doesn't anyone else do it like this? It's just so, so good. Um, I always find myself, this is kind of a plug because it's my friend's bar, but I always find myself at laissez-faire. Um, it's just a good kind of vibe, especially like if you need to go out on King Street, it's like the one spot that, you know, I think you can go out <laughs> and have a good time still. My friend just opened up a spot called Bar Poet. That's a pretty rad spot. Um, and then, you know, obviously just the parks. Like I love just going to any park really. Um, what was your very first job? My very first job. So I started working really, really young. Um, my first job, I would have been eight years old probably. And I was bussing tables. I lived in Windsor at the time. We only lived there for like maybe six months or something, but we had a little restaurant downstairs and they had the best lasagna. So I would just go downstairs and like wipe down tables and he, the guy that owned the place would let me keep all the tips. And then he'd just give me lasagna. And that was my first job. And then I had a paper route by the time I was like 10 or 11. Um, yeah, I, I always worked. I can't even remember a time when I didn't work. So. <laughs> It was so good. He would like take it out and I would just eat it cold and I was still happy with it. So. <laughs> and um, for entrepreneurs who want to do what you do, what are kind of the first steps that they should take? Just take a step. You know, I, I, there's so many people that kind of 
obsess over where to start and there's no real right place to start I don't think like just think of one thing that you think you can get done and get it done because there's always going to be a never-ending list of things you're never going to finish there is literally no finish line uh, unless you're selling the business and even then that's a huge huge process Um, so you know I, I describe it this way my brother always had a messy bedroom and I always had a really clean bedroom and his excuse for a messy bedroom was he didn't know where to start you know it would be a big mess and it's like where do I start and I would look at it and I'd be like how about there pick up the first friggin' thing you see like why is this difficult you know, and, and I think it's the same thing with a business. Like there's not really a right place to start. And, you know, I'm sure there's some business teacher out there who's going to try and smack me in the face and say, well, it should be a business plan and you got to start with your SWOT or whatever. I don't know, but I think it's just starting, you know, maybe go get a template for a business plan and start filling it out. Just do something. Cool. And uh, what other general advice do you have for entrepreneurs out there? Don't listen to your friends and family when they say you're crazy. But, you know, if you if somebody... Yeah, just that. <laughs> you know, I, I think back to when, you know, my first few years of doing this and there were just so many people that made me feel like I was insane. You know, like, why are you doing this? You could have a good job. You know, you have an education. You're a smart guy, blah, blah, blah. And just kind of made it seem like it was ridiculous and I was working too hard for something that's never going to be anything. Um, but I knew, you know, I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I'm, I'm nervous about giving that advice because some people are just chasing completely delusional ideas so I don't know (laughs) Um, and also expect it to be difficult and enjoy the journey you know I think a lot of people especially entrepreneurs we have this obsession with looking to the future and it's what allows us to do what we do but it's so important to take stock on what you have accomplished and and like take a moment to appreciate that I don't do that enough but I do it more than ever before and I feel like I'm a lot happier and a lot more proud of what I've accomplished um, because you'll always continue to set your bar higher, right? So you need to do something to acknowledge what you've done that day. Yeah, that's great. Definitely. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for hosting us in your home so we could do this podcast and uh, for standing with us while we did it. And yeah, it was really great talking to you and learning more about uh, your industry, which uh, was a uh, first time for us. So yeah, thank awesome. you. It was awesome. great. My thank pleasure. You. Thank you. We wanted to thank you so much for coming in. We had such a great time interviewing you for Floater Founder. And thank you so much to our listeners. We are so excited to share more founder stories with you. Until Until next time. time.